Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, child care providers can reopen under Massachusetts Phase 2, but will new health guidelines force many to close? With street demonstrators calling for police reform, faculty at UMass Boston protest local police using the campus as a staging area. And generational differences lead to two very different vigils for George Floyd in Everett. These stories and more during our local news roundtable. Later in the show, companies are working overtime to meet Americans' demand for the new necessary accessory, face masks. Because they're on your face, they're really personal and they're also symbolic. And so people now are wearing them as fashion statements to express their values. So masks have really diversified like sneakers. You have high performance masks, athletic masks, laser masks, uh, fashion masks, etc. Mask madness during the pandemic. But first, joining me remotely, Gen Dumpchis, digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Welcome back, Gen. Thank you. Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Hello, Seth. Hey, Kelly. And Yawu Miller, senior editor for the Bay State Banner. Hi, Yawu. Hi, Kelly. I'm so glad to have all of you. Let's start this way. Here's just some sound of the protests during Boston's uh, last, really, week of protests. Let's just take a listen. Black Lives Matter! 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 I wanted us all to hear that because, um, first of all, people are surprised that there has been a consistent and a continuing effort uh, by people who've gone to the streets to make their voices heard and to demand particularly police reform. Um, I note that, Yahoo, one of your pieces really talked about local elected officials who have united in their opposition to police violence. Now, there's a lot on the table about how to have police reform, but I do think it's remarkable that local electeds have said that police violence is no longer tolerated in Boston, in greater Boston. Uh, talk to me about your piece and, and what you think is significant about the local electeds coming together in this way. Well, first of all, I mean, rewinding two years when Rachel Rollins was elected against what a lot of political pundits, including myself, thought were you know, insurmountable odds, um, it did signal a clear mandate from voters that there's an appetite for change in the criminal justice system, for reforms. What we're seeing now is that you know people like Rollins are being very outspoken, but also on the Boston City Council, there's there you know there are, for the first time uh, the conversation around um, let's take some of the funding away from the police and put it into prevention programs, uh, summer jobs, uh, youth programming. Um, that conversation is really taking off, and uh, a lot of that has to do with the changing um, composition of the council. It's majority people of color, majority women, and uh, it's a new day in Boston's political scene, and it's kind of forcing the mayor to at least confront these issues, even if he hasn't committed to anything specific. 
So, um, Yen, what do you think? Is the pressure, and it's pressure, it's continuing, really going to lead to any substantive change, which is a question that Yahweh was asking also in some of his reporting. But we've seen now, as he said, uh, the council members coming up with very specific proposals as a next step. But will any of that actually happen, do you think? You know, I think with a lot of things, sometimes people go off in different directions. There's, there's a loss of momentum. And if this momentum keeps up, then uh, there is certainly an opportunity to make these changes. Um, I think this is also being driven by the fact that, you know, technology has made it a lot easier to record the killings and the, and the incidents where, you know, before, before, say, Facebook Live or before uh, the ubiquity of cell phones, a lot of it was just on the police officer's word or whoever was in authority. It was their word against the person who's being uh, killed or harmed. Um, and, and now you're seeing, like, you're seeing in stark terms on video exactly what's happening. And I think that's why you're also sh- seeing the shift in polling where people are much more supportive of uh, a lot of these uh, changes. Um, and Seth, uh, what do you think about what is, appears to be a kind of coalescing in the street, actually, among thousands of people as they sort of have come together saying we need reform, whether they're saying defund the police or they're saying dismantling or they're saying get rid of chokeholds, whatever they're saying. It's a coalescing around wanting some substantive changes with regard to how uh, police interact, certainly with uh, minority communities, but in general. Well, I I think um, what I see, whether it's in um, these smaller cities or in Boston, is that it's been heard. I mean, they see this, the part about being sustained is important because it's not here today, gone tomorrow. The police, um, the leaders in the smaller communities that we cover are beginning to really address our, how many police officers live in the community. That's a big one. Um, the use of force, um, interacting with young people, all, all of those things are, 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 are changing and, um, I think a lot of the a lot of the police, particularly the upper levels, see that things they may have thought policing was great and, and everything was fine and had great relationships, but maybe they now see that it needs to be better and they have to even change what they have been doing, which they thought was okay mm-hmm. um, in some cases. Um, but yeah, the sustained pressure is really what it takes, and, and even the, you know, defunding the police department—that that argument, you know, putting more money into into things like bringing in social work into the police department. Um, we've seen some of that in Boston to um, address the opiate crisis. Um, maybe it could be spread out even further, taking the police away from some of the things they've had to respond to that I don't even think they want to respond to. You know, what has been happening isn't working, and I think the police get that. At least the upper levels do. Well, I recall after uh, several big incidents last year that a number of police chiefs around the country, and we, we heard from Gross, too, say, you cannot expect us uh, to be expert in all of these areas. We're not mm-hmm. expert in mental health. We are not right. expert in social work. And yet, you know, we were supposed to deal with all of that and then, you know, turn a switch and do security as well. And mm-hmm. it, it just just not working. It's 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 not working. So there is some recognition on their part that 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 is true. 
Um, we'll have to see how it works out if, in fact, some of the money that uh, is currently in the police budget, which, by the way, Yahoo, I'm sure you, you can attest to, is always healthy. There's a healthy police <laughs> budget, not just in Boston, but, but across the country. And it's not something that uh, local officials have been um, interested in touching. But now I, I think that might change. I mean, I do think there's a need for, I mean, if these reforms are going to happen, there has to be sustained pressure. It's also been six years of demonstrations, and I think we're at a point now where there's a window open. I mean, the, 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 the uh, city's budget um, is being discussed right now. The state budget is being discussed right now. And at least at the state level, DeLeo has signaled um, a willingness to talk about some of the issues that uh, the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus has been pushing for the last six years. So, so I mean, I do think there, there's a window for real reforms to happen. And also, this is coming on the heels of a, a year's worth of revelations about the state police department and corruption within there. So, Now, that's an excellent point, that because a lot came up at, at, with the state uh, police uh, scandal. And, and I should note that uh, y- your reference was to Robert DeLeo, DeLeo, who's a Speaker of the House in the in the legislature. Right. All right. Let me um, point to something that's in your uh, area, Seth. And mm-hmm. I think it really speaks to what we're also seeing in these protests, which is an, an interesting generational, not divide. There is a multi-generational um, engagement of, around these issues. However, in Everett, it got expressed two different ways. First, let's take a, a, a listen to this clip. This is from the city of Everett's Black Youth Vigil last week to remember George Floyd and discuss systemic racism. This isn't about blacks against whites or everyone against cops. This is about everyone against racism. We aren't starting a race war here. We're trying to end it. So say his name. The seemingly fresh wounds we bear today are centuries old. We cannot breathe. The systemic asphyxiation, the weight of an entire society on our backs, we cannot breathe. Now, if people didn't catch it, that vigil was outside. That was in person. That was people standing next to each other. That was youth-led. There was another vigil, though, that was virtual. So (laughs) tell us about the differences. So um, the young people, they really wanted to do something in person, um, and they had a different way of going about it. The online one, there were a lot of uh, faith leaders, there were um, education leaders, uh, the mayor uh, moderated it. Uh, there were a lot of good things said. The police chief was there. Um, Not to put know, too much fine a point on it, Seth, they were all right. older. Continue. Yes, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yes, but they were all older. Um, there, there was a, a wide range of people, um, but, but there was nobody probably under 30. <laughs> Um, now the young people, they, 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 you know, kind of rejected a lot of what was said. Um, and, and they decided to have their own and it was in person. It was at the park. Um, they had, uh, probably 200 people there and they really, what you heard is, is a lot of what was said. Um, they remembered people who have been killed by police brutality, um, in recent times. Bishop uh, Robert Brown and Everett. One thing he did say is the young people might have different viewpoint on this, but they don't necessarily know the whole story. He's going at it. You know, he went through the civil rights movement. Um, he was involved. He, he's seen the whole story. The younger people, um, I, I get a sense they're they're not patient. they're not going to be patient. And, and I think um, 
one young lady, you know, she said, uh, you know, you've, you've messed with the last generation. We're done. So I think there's those two different ways of looking at it. Um, the younger people, they just want action immediately. It'll be interesting to see how both ways come together, if at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yawo, you want to weigh in on this generational, I don't want to call it a divide, it differences. <laughs> um, the demonstrations we're seeing in Boston, it's mostly young people. You are seeing a good number of older people. You know, I think that, you know, what kinds of tactics people think are acceptable, sort of modalities of expressing outrage, and even, you know, you know, I think... Uh, some of the younger people want to see the police department abolished, whereas older people want to see it, uh, you know, sort of made more accountable um, and, and uh, held to higher standards of transparency and uh, accountability of community. Um, but every, I, mean, I think everybody's on board in one way or another. Um, and, you know, I, I, again, I go back to uh, Rachel Rawlings getting elected to, to, to just underscore how widespread the appetite for change is. Um, again, want to weigh in on the generational differences? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I've I've seen from from photos. Um, you know, I I know of a couple of folks who went to to Quincy Center, which is near near uh, where I live, and and there was certainly uh, a lot of folks of differing ages there. In terms of the overall issue, it's less about age, but feeling a need to be out there and feeling a need, whether it's through online or through in person, to have the voice heard and to show that the cause has critical mass. Well, you know, when you're young and I'm, you, you really feel like you do know everything and, um, and you have that level of, of uh, righteous passion, which is so important in terms of uh, the long game. And so to the extent that young people will be the drivers of this consistent pressure, this is very important. But, um, and they'll learn that uh, some of the other people that they didn't listen to on the, on the virtual um, vigil actually have some experience (laughs) that they may want to uh, take in as well. Uh, If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me remotely are Gin Dumchus, digital editor for the Boston Business Journal, Seth Daniel, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, and Yawu Miller, senior editor for the Bay State Banner. We're discussing the latest local news you might have missed. Now, something that's interesting to me in all of this is happening very rapidly, but the reverberation from the demonstrations and what the demonstrators are saying about uh, police violence has just touched other institutions. So I was very taken with this story from the Dorchester reporter about UMass Boston faculty raising a complaint jointly about the police using the campus, as they always have, apparently, as a staging area. Now, by that we mean they gathered together the various uh, police officers and got ready to go meet the demonstrators on the campus of UMass. And faculty complained uh, to the top administrator and Immediately, that practice was stopped. But it's been happening for a while. Again, what do you think? I mean, I think it's part symbolism, but it's also a, a reevaluation among entities that are saying, like, okay, well, why do we do this? Does this what does this need to happen? Um, in the case of UMass Boston, I remember when I was a student there many, many, many years ago. I do remember seeing a, a similar site. Uh, there was a staging area, and it is a very startling sight to see this you know, show of force, uh, even though they were kind of just basically uh, in, in a staging area, just, just getting ready. And I think with, with the UMass Boston campus, 
Um, certainly the, the faculty there have raised other issues when the campus had a contract with Salesforce and Salesforce was, was uh, in the spotlight over its uh, connection with immigration authorities. The faculty also raised concerns there too. And, and actually, I, that's something to kind of loop back on and find out what happened there um, and, and see if, if, if there was a change in relationship or something happened. But I think this is something consistent where the faculty is saying like, wait a second, why are we doing this? Is this necessary? And, and prompting that discussion uh, and, and debate, um, which, is, which is so necessary. Well, part of their response to it in their their letter, um, uh, Yahoo was a, was pointing to the makeup of their student body. They said, you know, we have a lot of black and brown students here. This is an intimidating presence, and we're not sure has any uh, purpose. Uh, you know, stage somewhere else, but not not on this campus. Your response? The faculty union at UMass Boston is. Um, you know, probably, I mean, I'm pretty sure majority white, but uh, yeah, they recognize that their student body is not. It's a majority people of color. You know, it it just, again, speaks to the, the, you know, white people have traditionally in this country seen police as as being there to protect them. And that narrative has kind of gotten flipped. I mean, it's never been that way for black people. It's always been way more complicated um, when, when black people see this kind of massing of military vehicles and um, police and riot gear, um, you know, it's not a reassuring feeling. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think that whites are now understanding that a lot better. Seth? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Um, the show of force, you know, I, I actually saw that. I went by um, when they were doing that. It is intimidating, you know. They're practicing moves and stuff like that. And and this, you know, the state police is um, something we brought up a little while ago. And and I think there's there's a lot of room for improvement there as they change in many different ways um, as they come into the city so many times and they stage in areas like that. And um, you know, I don't know what attitudes they bring in to the city from from where they're coming. And you know, this is just not a, a good look. It's not a good entrance um, <laughs> into what they're doing. And Everything pointed to that being a peaceful protest that night at Franklin Park. Boston Public Schools has lots of parking lots. Well, they do that. And we always already saw the MBTA um, decide not to transport police officers to protests. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, the, there's momentum in all these things that we're talking about. This is one piece of it. Um, there will probably be more. Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, there is now just some simple questioning of it for people to say, now, why are we doing this? And and, and what does it have to do with our institution or organization? And, and, and what do we want to say about that? In the moment of, of, of uh, the faculty uh, union here asking the question, it's it's pretty interesting because, as I said, it's been happening for for as long as Ginn was in school. <laughs> so, and speaking of Ginn, again, let's talk about reopening and some of the concerns for um, groups and organizations about reopening, as we've seen, um, even though uh, the phases are coming slowly and there are uh, very strict guidelines about how organizations, groups, individuals can reopen. And one of the places that you uh, zeroed in on was child care centers. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, our, our entire newsroom kind of reached out to entities that are allowed to open in phase two and, and you know, basically see how they're, check in on how, how they're faring. And I talked to uh, Christopher Vuck, he's the CEO of Rock and Roll Daycare in Cambridge, 
And, you know, for, for the childcare community, uh, and, and I'm, I'm talking here about the private pay community, not the subsidized with, with, with vouchers, the private pay community, they have not received any federal stimulus funds. They've been shut down for three months. And uh, now as they're trying to come back online in phase two, they're facing uh, a dizzying array of uh, regulations and, and, and rules. And Vuk, what he told me was that, uh, you know, the new regulations call for more staffers, but fewer children. And, you know, for a lot of daycares, that is, that is tough math uh, to, to handle. Uh, they have to, you know, prep, they have to buy equipment, they have to prep the rooms, uh, they have to keep separate rooms uh, because of caps on, on the number of children. So he told me he's looking at spending um, at least $25,000 to uh, fix up his, his center, put in barriers and additional equipment. And, uh, you know, $25,000 is for, for a small business is, is a lot of money. No kidding. And let's say he decides to go forward and somehow gets the money to put himself in a position to open. $25,000 is not a small amount, as you pointed out. Okay, that has to be passed on. I, I'm going to my dentist uh, coming up soon, and they inform me there is a pandemic fee now. You know, it makes, uh, yeah. you know, who's happy about it? But it makes sense. They've had to do all this extra stuff. Yeah, and I think that's something that that uh, folk, uh, you know, he he was concerned about passing along that cost to parents because he said, you know, some of them, you know, for the last three months they might not have as much money as they uh, as they used to, or they haven't been stocking it away. And as we know in in Massachusetts, uh, childcare is already incredibly expensive, and to ask parents to pitch in a little bit more, I think there are some daycare providers who are who are uncomfortable with that. Well, and I would just have to say, uh, Yahoo, that if you know anything about kids, I don't have any, but I know something about it, the whole cleanliness thing. Just think how much you have to invest in just keeping everything clean to the standard that we now need to, to make sure that we're warding off uh, any virus spread. It's, just think about that. <laughs> it's unimaginable. unimaginable. I, mean, I, 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 I mean, I couldn't imagine myself working in, in, in childcare under, under normal circumstances, the amount of, 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 uh, of cleaning that goes on and just sort of keeping kids' hands out of their mouths and keeping them off each other. And yeah, just the, the level of complexity now is, is, is uh, um, it, it's way above what childcare workers get paid in Massachusetts. So. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, Seth, if these child care centers don't open up, a lot of people really can't go back to work. I mean, it, this is this is yeah. and I recognize, again, we're talking about private pay and there's right. a whole other issue on the other side. But still, these are this is a lot of people that's rep- right. that are represented. Right. This is um, actually wrote about this um, earlier this year. It's a crisis in, in, in child care. And uh, the city actually has a department, city of Boston, to um, kind of address this and what I see happening, I think that these private pay daycares are going to have to raise their rates. Um, there are a lot of families, like Jen said, who maybe have lost income, and they won't be able to pay those rates. And what I figure is going to happen is what has happened in the past. Um, families are going to say to their employers, I want to work two days from home so that I can watch my children, and then three days I'll send them to the, to the daycare. Mm. And then that way it all evens out, right? They'll pay the same that they did before, but they'll have two less days, and then they'll stay home if they can, work from home if that's even possible. Um, or maybe they even take a cut in their hours. I don't know how it's going to work, but um, I, I don't see it happening like everybody goes back to normal when it comes to daycare. Uh, the, the level of, of costs are just going to be 
um, really felt in that that industry, I believe. I, I agree with you. And Yahoo, you have a piece about there's a lot of issues around opening schools. We're talking kids going back into the school buildings, and um, lots of people are raising questions about this. I mean, how can Massachusetts be ready to do this? Right. I mean, in Boston, we have many school buildings where the windows don't open and the HVAC systems, you know, can't control for mold. So, you know, what about the aerial transmission? It it seems clear that, you know, for social distancing, you would need uh, more space in the classroom and, you know, perhaps smaller class sizes. And um, there are a lot of issues that have to be sorted out. uh, And uh, some of the buzz that I've heard in the last week is, around the idea that people would go back, like in phases, like not a full five-day-a-week schedule, but, you know, one group goes in and another group goes in. So, But the, the transportation in Boston is also, a, you know, a daunting issue. So yeah, there's a, a lot that will need to get sorted. And I imagine that people are going to be looking at the numbers of COVID cases and seeing sort of where we're at um, before they make that decision. Yes, and I can point out that a WGBH poll that we took several weeks ago said high percentages of people are uncomfortable on transportation. So you know they're not putting their kids on public transportation if they're uncomfortable. So it's that is really something that has to be worked out to sort of reduce the fear that people can feel like it really is clean enough um, to protect them. But meanwhile... Um, Again, I think this is so interesting. Um, you have a piece in the uh, in the Boston Business Journal, or you all are reporting, that community colleges could get a big boost. Now, what are they going to do? Are they going to have people on campus? Because all of these issues in the daycare and at the public schools still exist um, in a educational situation. Yeah, so this is something that uh, my colleague, uh, Hillary Burns, who covers higher ed for us, uh, she... she uh, she read this report from the higher education research group called EduVentures. And what EduVentures said was basically community colleges are, are better positioned in, in many ways than the, the expensive four-year colleges to take advantage of this unease among students who might want to stay a little closer to home this fall semester and are willing to do online and hybrid. Um, and I think it is important to note that there is a, a disproportionate focus in the media overall uh, and I'm certainly guilty of this too, of, of the Harvards and the Yales, when so many people go to community college and so many people get educa- their education from a community college. Um, and and in, in this case, you don't need all those uh, amenities that a lot of, you know, like Harvard or any other others, UMass Boston in recent years has certainly increased the level of amenities it has on campus. Community colleges don't have to think about that. And are they better suited for online education? Well, according to this report, um, the, the community colleges already have experience in online learning, and about 15% of community colleges students enrolled online, they were enrolled before the pandemic, uh, and another 25% uh, took at least one online course. And uh, my colleague Hillary, she reported that the Cape Cod Community College in West Barnstable, that was among one of the first institution, institutions in Massachusetts to say that they would rely on remote learning and a hybrid on-campus online model for the fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they might end up being the model for what happens. And and, and we should note that uh, of the four-year institutions, there is a working group of uh, administrators trying to figure out how they're going to approach the fall. And nothing has been said, though. Those announcements are coming um, before July 1st. So we'll we'll see about that. Um, something that I, I just want all of you all to weigh in on because I am experiencing it. 
these nightly fireworks that are going on in the South End uh, and South Boston residents are complaining about. And I can tell you, I hear them in Cambridge. What the, What is going on? Someone explain to me. Seth, I mean, you're out there all over in the independent news group. What's happening? Well, uh, yeah, they are everywhere. We hear it from JP. I mean, here in Dorchester, where I live, it's, it's been a fact of life from like June 1st to August 30th every year for about 10 years. But <laughs> this year is way worse. Um, we've heard a lot of complaints in JP and the South End. Um, there's a particularly par- uh, park, O'Day Park, where it's like um, it's 4th of July every night. And, uh, and they're much, the thing is, they have gotten maybe some commercial grade fireworks. So these are way louder. They're much bigger and they're way more expensive. I can tell you, I started hearing them probably, I think it was the day after New Hampshire opened. Um, it's businesses. Hmm. <laughs> so I think we know where they're coming from, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. And, and, and there is a cavalry of, of people who head up to New Hampshire perhaps daily, um, to restock. And, and yeah, they're, they're using whatever money they've cobbled together, the time they have now. And, and it's all night long. It's, it's literally 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. And it's every single night. I don't know how you could be that enthralled with fireworks, um, so many nights in a row for months. It's crazy. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't know why nobody's caught them yet. Um, as many cameras and everything else is out there. But I know sure. that because I started noticing time in Cambridge. It's 1130. It's 12 o'clock because I'm up and they they can wake you up there that loud. Yahoo, are you getting any? Um, are you reporting in about any of these fireworks going off? It's kind of been a fact of life for a long time, but it, it has gotten worse. Um, from the perspective of people trying to sleep through the night, it's, it, I mean, I, I imagine it's going to launch a Black Sleep Matters hashtag soon. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. And, and, you know, That's a um, good one, Yellow. <laughs> it's very difficult to for police to respond to these things because they're everywhere. And, mm. um, you know, how do you catch the person, you know? <laughs> like, like there's a bunch of people standing around. And you don't know who, who, who owned it, who brought it there, who lit it. Mm. Um I think that the enforcement needs to happen, you know, in New Hampshire and at the Massachusetts border. I mean, I think, you know, this has risen to a level perhaps where people can reach out to folks in New Hampshire and and, uh, and ask for help uh, enforcing these, these laws. And, you know, I mean, that's where the, the enforcement needs to happen, <laughs> like to the north of us. Gen, you heard anything? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the suburb of Weymouth, and and definitely it's been as I would say this week especially a little after dinner it's it started up, and but it is very startling because you know you're trying to relax in a little bit, and then just this boom echoes across the the sky. I think the the mayor said or, or the Boston police uh, say they they saw a 23,000 percent jump in calls for fireworks, so it's definitely not uh, just the usual you know summertime uh, issue. It's it's much worse, and. I, it it could be just people are bored. I, I mean that's that's that was my first guess. It's people are bored and and they're deciding to you know ruin everybody else's quiet by uh, by firing these things off. Yeah, my concern is that you know somebody mistake it for gunshots. All the booming and the popping. It's 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 very disconcerting and particularly in the middle of the night. So right. we'll see what happens. So there you have it. And that's where we're going to have to leave it right now. I thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Gan Dupchis is the digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Seth Daniel is a senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. And Yahoo Miller is the senior editor for the Bay State Banner. Coming up, 
In March, the U.S. Surgeon General tweeted that Americans should stop buying masks to preserve the supply for frontline workers. But within a few weeks, the Centers for Disease Control shifted its guidelines and mandated that Americans wear masks in all public places. We ask a local scientist and a manufacturer to break down which masks are most effective. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. The coronavirus outbreak has driven up demand for face masks. The main tool, scientists agree, is crucial to stopping the spread of the virus. But how do we weed through the flood of face mask information to determine the most effective ones to wear? How is the garment industry using fashion and function to make their masks stand out? And will face coverings become an integral part of our culture? Joining me remotely, Dr. Aaron Bromage, comparative immunologist and professor of biology at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Welcome, doctor. Thank you, Kelly, for having me on the show. Glad to have you. Also with me, Marissa Goldstein, founder of Rafi Nova, a Needham-based business that's pivoted to producing face masks. Hi, Marissa. Hi there. Thanks for having me as well. Uh, Definitely. So face masks are all a part of the public discourse in this moment. Some of it is uh, has become political, uh, but really there's a lot of conversation about, you know, what really works, how you're supposed to wear it, how you're supposed to clean it and and the need. I mean, there's still still discussion about that among the public, but not among scientists. So, Dr. Bromich, I want to start with you because uh, in the piece that you sent out, which got you quite a bit of attention, we could say um, it became viral. (laughs) (laughs) It went everywhere because it was kind of a common sense roundup of what we needed to know about how the infection spread and what we should be doing to protect ourselves. But part of it, uh, you talked about how much virus is released into the environment through a cough, a sneeze, or a breath. And I wonder if you would just sort of uh, reiterate that so people understand what the mask is supposed to be doing. Yeah, so there is a common misconception with infection that you only need to be exposed to a single bacteria or a single virus in order to become sick. And that's not the way that it works. It is exposure to sufficient virus over a period of time that becomes important in establishing infection. And sufficient virus can come with one cough or one sneeze directly in front of you when you're talking to somebody and they could transmit enough virus across to you to establish infection and get sick. But it can also happen a little bit more cryptically when you have an infected person speaking to you they're also releasing small amounts of droplets out of their mouth while they're speaking. And if that's in a face-to-face conversation, you can be breathing in just low levels of virus over a 10 or a 15 minute conversation that gets you to that important infectious dose and infection can be established in you. And then even more cryptically is having somebody that is in the same room as you that you're not necessarily speaking to, but then with their breathing and their general talking are releasing tiny amounts of virus into the air, 
but your breaths in and out, just take in a little bit and a little bit more with each successive breath. And then that allows over a period of half an hour or an hour for you to get to that infectious dose, establish an infection, and then potentially make you sick. And you started really talking about all of this. I mean, we should note that at the time that you first began uh, speaking about it to your students, you'd noticed that this was happening in China. The The people who were paying attention to your blog posts about it were about 300 to 400, and then it exploded uh, once you uh, posted the risks, know them, avoid them. I just want to say personally, I got that about 15 times from various friends. <laughs> um, and then I sent it on about a billion times to other people. So this is why it happened. And just wonder of all wonders, this morning, my sister sent it to me, <laughs> having no idea that I already had it. So obviously you struck a chord with, you know, just explaining to people calmly about what needs to happen. So now that we understand how those droplets interact and the time and the exposure and all that, uh, what that means, I think we can begin to see how important a face mask is in the, the regimen of what we need to be doing to protect ourselves. Uh, just a little bit of history. Uh, it was February 29th of when the Surgeon General said, listen, seriously, people in a tweet, stop buying masks. Because at that time, uh, for whatever reason, uh, uh, his concern was that the general public didn't need it. And if they started to wear a mask, then healthcare providers wouldn't be able to get them. And it quickly accelerated to by uh, a month later, April 3rd, the CDC recommended Americans wear cloth face coverings, but they could fashion them out of anything. And then on April 15th, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh uh, made masks mandatory. Let's take a listen to uh, the Boston mayor talking about this uh, mask order. The state policy allows fines for noncompliance. I've heard many questions about this. Certainly we're looking at the situation, but we've heard and, and, and witnessed and read situations in other parts of the country where enforcement has been uneven or even inequitable in communities of color. The purpose of our guidelines is to empower and keep your families and your community safe. So, that was the order by Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. It was followed later by my town of Cambridge, April 27th, other towns. And then Governor Baker uh, did a mask advisory on April 10th. May 1st, he announced a kind of mandatory new statewide policy that one should wear a mask outside of the home. Meanwhile, Marissa Goldstein, um, you and your husband were making bags for what you thought was going to be the, the main product of your new company. But in the midst of all this, you pivoted to making masks. So first explain um, what kind of masks you make and where you got the inspiration to make the kinds of masks that you do. Sure. So we launched our company, which is Upcycled Travel Bags, designed to make traveling easier for families. We launched on February 17th, which was probably the worst time in history to launch a travel and accessories company. Um, so it was actually March 29th that we decided to start to manufacture face masks. And the original goal was to have a crowdfunding campaign to offset manufacturing costs and donate masks to frontliners. And it was April 2nd when we decided to start selling the masks on our website due to the demand. So we decided um, to manufacture cloth face masks 
and they are both technical and fashionable, but at the very beginning, it was just all about providing a comfortable and effective cloth face mask, and then the style came in after. But this actually came about because we've spent the past couple years living in Vietnam, and in Vietnam, we are used to wearing face masks. When our kids go to school, they put on a mask when they go outside. When we're traveling on a motorbike, we're wearing a mask. And so we were very used to wearing masks and mask culture, and our manufacturers that we've been working hand-in-hand with for the past couple years are also well-versed at making face masks. So it was like this perfect opportunity to start to manufacture and donate and sell face masks to the public. And uh, about the time that you started making the mask, uh, it seems to me uh, there was just a sort of general overwhelming across the country, people making handmade ones, of course, but also companies now have have either pivoted or decided this is going to be the product that they make. We just pulled a few ads from around uh, the Internet and elsewhere just to give people a sense of, of how much interest there is in making of masks. And here it is. Here's a, here's a cut of different advertisements for masks. Our protective wear is more than a scarf or a bandana and more thoughtful than a mask. Lab tested, artfully designed. Scarf doesn't forgo function for form. During cold and flu season, and now the COVID-19 outbreak, safety is of the utmost importance. Healthy Eco Living line of products brings you Firma face masks. But wait, if you call now, you'll get the ShamWow mask. Made with the same high-tech material they use to make surgical masks. Machine washable. Don't leave your home without it. So, Dr. Bromwich, everybody's making them, but they're not equally effective. Um, Tell us what needs to be in a mask for it to be effective. And... um, by the way, how one should wear it, because I've seen various ways people are wearing them. Yeah, so even the the most basic mask, a scarf or a neck sleeve, will have some positive effect on reducing the amount of those respiratory droplets that you are emitting into the environment. And so there are already many different types that we use in the medical field, type 1, type 3, the N95 respirators. And it's all about whether you are trying to protect yourself or whether you're trying to protect the people that you are coming in contact with by what you release. And so the, the more material that you can put in front of yourself, the, the tighter the weave uh, increases filtering capacity. And I've seen some ones made by uh, people that are in the garment and fashion industry are getting up to as good a filtering quality as what we're seeing with a a type three surgical mask. So they can be made really quite well at a a commercial level for uh, people in the community. And Dr. Brummage, what kind do you wear? Let me, let me just start there. (laughs) Um, I have a a neck sleeve one that if I'm going on a a jog or somewhere where I know that 95% of the time I can maintain social, like physical distancing, but at that 5% where I get to a a path where people are forced into, I'm able to pull up the next sleeve and you know minimize the majority of what I am breathing out. Uh, when I am in more of a social situation, I you know, bought a mask from a, a local vendor and it's just a much more comfortable one on my face. Uh, it catches more of my respiratory droplets coming out and it's just something more comfortable to wear when I am in a a more social situation that brings me in contact with other people for an extended period. 
But then I have my super duper mask, which is my N95, mm. um, when I cannot maintain social distance if I am in a situation, especially at work at the moment. So inside my research lab, I can't necessarily distance all the time from uh, the people I'm working with. And so we're wearing N95s to be as secure as possible. And we should note that N95s are the premier medical-grade mask for healthcare workers and frontline workers. I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Dr. Aaron Bromage, you just heard him, comparative immunologist and professor of biology at UMass Dartmouth, and Marissa Goldstein, founder of the Needham-based Rafinova. We're discussing all things face masks. Now, back to you, Marissa, because your particular masks, the ones that you make, have several layers to them, and they have a filter. Um, not all masks have that. And again, you had learned about how to do your masks from wearing them and living with them in Vietnam. So is that why there's a filter in yours? What, what made you decide to do that? So our filter is non-removable in the version that you're looking at right now, which is our best-selling performance mask. But our performance mask has four layers, including two antibacterial layers. Um, so the outside is a non-porous, 100% cotton outer layer. The two inner layers are um, interlining, um, which has that antibacterial properties. And then we have a comfortable inner cotton layer. And this is the part that goes against your face, because if your mask is not comfortable, nobody's going to wear it. So every day there's new information coming out about masks, and um, we're constantly improving them and innovating on them and looking at things like silver-infused antimicrobial fabrics um, and, you know, removable filters and different types of ear adjusters for added comfort, um, you name it. But our masks, people have really enjoyed wearing them. We feel like the four layers add added protection. And we design these hand in hand with our Vietnamese partners who, yes, who have a lot of experience wearing masks. Um, I should say, I tried one of yours. It's quite light because I have about three, as the doctor has, a couple, all of mine are homemade and none of them are medical grade, you know, in, in like an N95 mask. Um, but yours, with the layers and the filter, because I, f- I figured it'd be heavier, but actually it's not. The other thing that you've done, um, which I'm going to circle back to Dr. Brummage about in just a second, is that they're adjustable. I mean, you really have a thing about the fit, which... Going back to what something that the professor said a little bit earlier, that it can keep the mask closer around your mouth uh, and I guess would do a better job of keeping some of those droplets going out in various directions. Yes, that's correct. So the fact that it's adjustable makes it tighter around the face and more comfortable. And so, you know, we're going for we're going for comfort and we're going for the most protection. And that's what we strive to do. Okay. Dr. Brummage, the adjustable part of these masks, um, based on what you said earlier in terms of trying to, you know, keep those droplets from coming out from even escaping a little bit from the mask seems to be an, an added benefit. Talk to me about filtering. How important is it to have these filters in the mask, which gives you an extra way of absorbing some of the stuff? Yeah, so fit becomes really important. And If you don't get the fit right, everybody that wears glasses know that your glasses fog up. That's your respiratory droplets now shooting up towards your eyes and they're still heading out into the environment. Um, What the masks do in that particular case is they catch those larger droplets that you're putting out and they do catch those on the surface. So they definitely reduce emissions. 
the better the fit that you can have. So if you have a wire part across the nose that allows you to fit it across the nose, if it can tuck in a little tighter under the chin, um, therefore forces more of your breath through it, which then protects other people, not you. And then if you are drawing in and you're drawing in through that mask area, again, because of a good fit, having that filter there then provides protection to you. So at the, the lowest level of masks, like the basic home ones, the vast majority of those just capture the, the large droplets that are coming from you, but the smaller ones do escape top and bottom. When you look at masks that are made to fit better, where you're putting more of the air that you're breathing in and out through the material, their filtering capacity or efficiency increases, and then it starts protecting not only the people that you're around, but also you as well. So having a well-designed mask with a good filter in it can actually have that dual purpose of protecting both the people you're with and yourself. And just to be clear, Marissa, that's that's your mask that you make. You have the filter, you have the fit design. That was something I hadn't had in any other mask that I, I tried before. It also has the nose clip, so you yeah, can tighten exactly. it around your nose. Exactly. So that's that's really important. Now, as this has gone on, there has been a lot of discussion uh, about the culture shift in thinking about wearing masks. Marissa, you talked earlier about in Vietnam, everybody wore them. Um, I think, Dr. Bromage, you could refer back to the SARS crisis 17 years ago, that in a lot of Asian countries, that began to be sort of a regular wearing of masks. That became part of just ordinary, you know, living in those countries as a way of just just protecting other people. But here, there's some amount of pushback as people feel like they're being forced to do something. So, Dr. Bromage, would you speak again about, this is not the be-all and end-all. You have to do other things as well, and social distancing is very, very important. But this is a key component, the face mask. So for people who are still thinking it really doesn't matter, and oh, by the way, I can wear it on my neck, which I see a lot, not on the face, that, that this does make a huge difference in slowing the spread of the virus. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we know with this virus, on average, an infected person will infect roughly three others. Um, and that's called an r naught. And when that happens, you end up with three, those three infect three, which goes to nine, then that heads out to 27. So when you're locked down, you don't have those interactions and therefore it can't spread. But if we want to be able to control the, the spread of infection without having major restrictions on our movement, we have to take little chunks out of the armor of this virus. And one of those things is and absolutely is masks. If everyone is wearing a mask, you're not only just protecting yourself, but you're protecting others because you're stopping those respiratory emissions coming down. So let's say that wearing masks takes a full one point out of that R naught value and it drops it down to, to two. Now one infects two, two infects four, four infects eight. Um, you can see straight away it, the the rapid escalation of infections doesn't happen as quickly as what it did without wearing masks. You then add physical distancing into that and washing hands and maybe having a few less contacts and then all of a sudden you get that number down below one and when you get it below one, the virus will go extinct. So it is part of the solution to regaining normalcy in our life is for everyone to be wearing masks 
when you cannot physically distance. That alone will take a really important step towards regaining normalcy both in summer, but also us coming into fall. Um, Marissa, what do you say to, to Americans who are so uncomfortable wearing masks, not just as, a, as a, a person making them, manufacturing them, but also as somebody who's lived in a country where this was commonplace? Just wear the mask. It's, as you hear from Dr. Bromish, it's just, it's so important to wear a mask and it's, it's like, it's doing your part. And there's just such a huge gap between the public's acceptance of masks and their understanding on how to prevent the cross-contamination. And we're actually trying to organize a non-branded mask initiative to educate the public on masks. So we don't care where you're buying the mask, whether you're buying it from us or from any other businesses, we just want you to wear masks. So I think it is about educating the public on the importance of the masks and how they really do make a difference. Um, one other question, Dr. Bromage. Uh, Senator Tim Kaine wears a bandana. Some people do wear bandanas. I know you said any covering's better than none, but on a scale of one to five, how effective is a bandana versus a, a real mask? Um, it's about a one or a two. It is going to protect the person that's in front of you if you sneeze or cough. It's going to capture the vast majority of those droplets that are expelled at a fast rate any little bits of spits that come out when you're talking. So it's taking away those really high risk interactions that you can have, um, but it's not helping very much when you're dealing with the 10 or 15 minute conversation in an enclosed space um, or working in an enclosed space. That That's not really meeting the needs of dropping those small little respiratory droplets out of the air. And another question. Some of the masks I've seen have this little button on the outside or XL ports on them. Please tell me about that. What about them? Yeah, so I can't say I'm a huge fan of those at the moment because we are wearing masks not only for ourselves but for protecting others. And the vast majority of the masks that have those ports on the side protect you if they're fitted properly. But the way that they work is when you breathe out, the port opens. And so it allows those respiratory droplets to um, not only leave your mask, but actually leave your mask at a higher velocity so they can travel a little bit further. I haven't seen anyone design, and it doesn't mean they're not out there, masks that filter on both ways in and out. Um, but if you're really thinking from an altruistic point of view that, my wearing a mask is there to actually lower respiratory emissions in general to protect my neighbor and protect my colleague. Um, those vented masks don't serve that purpose. And let's talk about cleaning them because you've been breathing in all the stuff. You've kept it inside. That's what the mask did. So it's really important, Marissa, to clean these masks correctly. <laughs> it is. So for our masks, we tell people per the CDC recommendations to wash their masks each day after use. And, you know, we see people, they'll take off their mask by touching the front, which is a no-no. And they'll also put their dirty mask into their pocket, which also is not a good thing. So we suggest when you remove your mask to just touch the, the ear elastics and to put it into a sealed bag, whether it's a Ziploc bag or a bag, you know, designed for your mask. And each day to wash it, you can either hand wash it with warm water and detergent and air dry, or our, for our masks, you can put them in the washing machine and then we suggest air dry. 
And I'd like you to make one more comment about fashion. That seems a little silly to some people, but actually you say it makes a difference. Yeah, so masks, because they're on your face, they're really personal and they're also symbolic. And so people now are wearing them as fashion statements to express their values. So masks have really diversified, like sneakers. You have high-performance masks, athletic masks, laser masks, uh, fashion masks, etc. Um, so it's important that it, it's comfortable, it fits well, it's effective, but people also want them to look cute. They want them to match their outfit or they want them to say certain things that represent them. So now we're just seeing so many options on the market. All right. Um, Dr. Bromage, I would like to know if there's something you can say to help diffuse this uh, apparent growing tension with the people who feel like they're being forced to wear a mask and um, somehow it's political. You know, Costco has a now uh, you must wear a mask policy when shopping. And some people have, you know, threatened to give up their membership. They're not going in there. You're, you know, I'm reading a comment from somebody who said this is you know, a mob uh, falling for the propaganda. The president himself accused uh, Jeff Mason, who's a reporter, a White House correspondent, of being politically correct by wearing his mask and asking him a question uh, not long ago. Um, what do you how can you respond to that? Yeah, I, I find it really disappointing that masks have been politicized. We know from the healthcare profession that masks work. Um, we've never really thought about masks from that altruistic point of view of, I am protecting my neighbor, I am protecting my friend, I am protecting my grandmother. We've always thought about masks as protecting ourselves, And that's not the way this needs to be. This needs to be something in regards to a social conscience that you realize that the actions that you take right now, including wearing a mask, determines how many people in our community actually get sick. And if you take away the politics and just ignore what people are saying and think of it from a point of view of, would you help your neighbor that was in trouble? And if the answer is yes, then masks are part of that solution that you should embrace and adopt. Well, I thank you both for being part of the solution and joining me in this conversation. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you very much. Dr. Aaron Bromage is a comparative immunologist and professor of biology at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. Marissa Goldstein is the founder of Rafi Nova, a Needham-based business that's pivoted to producing face masks. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org News, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubelee and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.